Alrighty, hey. G'day everybody, my name's Russ. Uh, we're reading today from Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking for a sign from him, from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says... I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. So then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body, when your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Thank you, Russ. Morning, folks. Good to have you along today. Uh, if you're new or visiting for us for the first time or the first of a number of times, great to have you along. If you're back from, the, from a holiday, it's good to have you along as well. In fact, we're still, um, I think next week and the week after are generally our big weeks when every sort of, everyone's sort of back on board for the year. But as I said, it's good to have everyone in the house today. Um, uh, if you are new, though, if you are visiting, uh, you'll, uh, as Simon mentioned, we're in the final sermon, uh, se- uh, sorry, sermon in a series on Luke called He's the One. Um, if you've been along to any part of that for the last of two months, we've been doing that. Um, I'm sure you'll agree, but there, there, there's been some pretty punchy little passages in here. 
As we studied, it's been pretty sharp at times. There's been plenty of hard-hitting statements made about who Jesus is, about what he expects of people personally, about what kind of difference that makes ultimately. And I don't know about you, but quite honestly, I've constantly felt challenged and repeatedly corrected and yet at the same time, always encouraged as we've studied these passages. Even though I'm the one that sort of gets up on this side of the microphone, I'm preaching to myself at the same time, and I found myself constantly being addressed by God in His Word. That's a good thing. It shouldn't be surprising, and yet I can appreciate that it can sometimes feel a little unnerving at one level. And I mention this because it's no different today. In fact, the passage we're looking at that Russ just read for us it again, it again probes and challenges the thoughts of our hearts and our attitudes in particular about the man Jesus. And if we are fair dinkum about listening well, you'll notice that he's commanding us to take a particular view of him. Make no mistake about that. Jesus is commanding, he is imploring, he is, he's actually even sort of making sport of those who would have a different opinion in some ways, in a gentle, kind and serious way. And it's challenging. And it got me thinking as I was preparing for this. It got me thinking that, as Simon mentioned, when you've got a group of people in front of you, you can always split them into roughly one of two groups. Uh, the categories may differ. Simon had many more examples than I've got. You can have Jews and Gentiles. There's a, there's a common, you know, people who dance around in circles just differently. I'm not sure if the Jews go clockwise or anti-clockwise. I don't know. You've got males and females. All right? there's, there's some, there should be some sides there for this, Kel. Yeah, thanks. There's males and females. There's another category of St. George supporters and pagans. Um, actually, that's not, that's not quite right. That's a little unfair. Not all of uh, non-dragon supporters are technically pagans. So let's go to dragons and the wicked, and we'll just more generally. But when it comes to hearing the Bible, when it comes to hearing challenging parts of the Bible, the categories I want you to be aware of today are just these. Two groups of people. One, there are those amongst us who have a more tender conscience. There are those who are here who are more likely to hear the challenging bits of the Bible and assume the worst about themselves and for themselves, even when God's word is pointing to something of the contrary. It's one group of people. The second group is the opposite. It's those whose consciences have a little too much padding, shall I say. Those who are more likely to hear the challenging bits of the Bible and either not hear them or completely overlook the challenge because they've assumed the best about themselves and for themselves, even when God's word is pointing to something of the contrary. Now, do you understand those possibilities? Personally, do you understand those possibilities? One assuming more naturally that they're beyond help. One assuming that they don't need it. And when it comes to Jesus, both camps are wrong. There's something quite different here that we need to see. Now, I don't know which, which camp you sort of more naturally gravitate towards, but I know that people from both these camps are here today, all right? That's just statistics. So I want you to take a moment to reflect on which way you are more prone to lean and actively try to counter that as you listen. In fact, I want to start, I mean, there's a bit of a long preamble, but I want to start by praying and I want to um, ask that God would actually help us to do that. Would you pray with me before we look at the passage? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that as you address us personally through your word, it really does challenge and correct and change and encourage us to consider Christ for who he really is and to see why that matters. Father, we do ask that for those amongst us here today who are more tender conscience, we ask that you would help us to be encouraged and challenged and changed without being crushed. 
and for those among us with a thicker skin, so to speak. Help us hear the challenge. Help us heed the change. Prevent us from either shrugging Jesus off again or attempting some kind of shallow response. We ask it for our good and ultimately for your glory. Amen. Now, so I started that little bit of an extra preamble because, well, the big idea of today's passage, if you've got one of the outlines, it's just there. It's Jesus is the one. That's sort of been code the whole way through. It's shorthand way of saying Jesus is God. He's God's Messiah. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's literally God incarnate, God with meat. You know, meat on, that's incarnate. Um, he, he is the expectation, the fulfillment rather, of every Old Testament promise and expectation. He is the universal Lord and King over the entire universe, including any plane or dimension conceivable. He's the one. And when it comes to your opinion or your response to him, there's no neutral territory. Now, do you, know, you get what I mean by that? It means when you come to Jesus, you must either accept all the biblical historical truths about him and live in line with all the implications that has for you personally or you must reject the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus. Now, hear me right again. You may reject him outright. That's one way of rejecting him. Some others are reject him by trying to sort of water down a vision of Jesus. In fact, this is popular among many uh, religions who are so-called positive towards Jesus. It's a watered-down version, but notice that they are rejections of the biblical, historical Jesus. There's only two options. There's only two camps. There's only two camps in the passage we see today. There's only two camps in this room. Because when it comes to Jesus of the Bible, there's no fence to sit on. Right? There's no half in, half out. Nobody can be Switzerland. You know what I mean by that? Neutral, impartial, we're just looking on, we're just doing our own thing, we're Switzerland. No! No one's Switzerland. You've got to make your mind up. You either accept him as he's revealed himself to be or you reject him. Obviously, my, pl- my prayer and, imp- and my, I'm imploring you to, uh, to, to see the evidence and the truth for who he is and make the right decision because he is the one. But don't be, don't be unaware that it doesn't always go like that. In fact, let's look at the passage. We heard Russ um, read it for us. It starts with an exorcism. Jesus casting out a demon that has made a man mute. But I don't want you to first focus on the miraculous event. I want you to pay a particular attention to the response of the Jewish crowd. Have a look at it there in verse 15. This is what they say. Some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now just stop for a second and just work this out. Do you realize what's just gone on here? Do you, do you notice... There's no attempt from the Jews or from the crowd. There's no attempt to deny that something miraculous has gone on. In fact, they can't deny it. It's just happened in front of them. So they don't deny it. Actually, as an aside, neither should we. (laughs) But they've got no intention of trying to perform what I would call a Swiss manoeuvre at that point. There's no uh, intention for them to pretend to be impartial or unseeing or unmoved by what's clearly in front of them. No, that's irrational. That's not how they respond. They know they must respond. There's integrity in that. But what's their response? Well, they suggest that Jesus is a demon himself. Not just any demon. He must be the prince of demons. He must be the king of the demons. He must be Beelzebub. That's how he's pulled off his feet. He's a stronger demon getting rid of another demon. Now, again, I want you just before you sort of, just sort of, yeah, that's not obviously not right. Just stop for a minute. That's actually... At face value, that's not an entirely implausible option. Do you realize that? 
at face value at least that's an op- it's a possibility at least jesus could just be more a more powerful demonic force that's where they land and as i as i mentioned there's an integrity in this response because they realize they can't just ignore him they've got to do something with him but does their conclusion i want to ask does their conclusion actually fit all the evidence in the equation and not only that does their conclusion fit all the evidence in the equation and do they have the integrity and the humility enough to change their position in light of new evidence, in light of clear reason and logic. Now, I ask that because I really want to put that question to each of us here again today. The same could be asked of you. You may have an opinion about Jesus. You need to have an opinion about Jesus. You may have one presently. It may seem reasonable. It may actually be an attempt at wisdom. It may be your attempt to be inclusive of competing ideas, You may have actually thought about this at length and you're trying to fit it all in and trying to not rock the boat or make waves or be included. But does it fit with the evidence of the Jesus of history? And if not, do you have enough humility and integrity to change your position? So you look at Jesus' response to the Jews. In fact, he uses a series of rhetorical questions that clearly demonstrate a flaw in their logic. In fact, it starts with a simple statement. Look at it at verse 17. Jesus says, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. And then he comes with a series of rhetorical questions. The first one, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? The answer is it can't. That's the idea here. It can't stand. A house divided, a kingdom that is uh, with a series of internal divisions, it's on its way to disaster. Now, again, that's not hard to illustrate. Time and time again, we've seen it, unfortunately, in Australian political spheres. You know, when, when factions and infighting are present in any of the major parties or either of the major parties, that party doesn't stay long in leadership. You think about the series of knife jobs we saw just recently. <laughs> Rudd on Gillard, Gillard on Rudd. It's, it's a constant. And it just, I mean, Morrison ended up winning the unwinnable election after that, didn't he? Oop. We see it time and time again there. And it's by similar analogy that if Jesus was the prince of demons and yet was opposing and forcing out his own demonic interests, then that's kind of that's serious division in the ranks. That means that kingdom is already basically on its way down. That's ridiculous. The logic doesn't fit. Furthermore, the next rhetorical question, verse 19. Jesus says, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your followers drive them out? This is classic. It's a bit of one of those, uh, I don't want to lump Jesus in with the current affairs here, but it's one of those gotcha type moments. (laughs) It's one of those gotcha type moments, right? Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of their position. You see, the Jews had no problem with accepting the possibility and the problem of demonic influence and demonic forces at play in life, and they also engage in trying to free people from these forces. So why do they naturally assume and accuse that Jesus is doing the same thing but by nefarious means? Unless they're willing to entertain the similar charge that they also are acting on behalf of Beelzebub, using similar demonic means. Again, see, their logic doesn't fit. It's wildly inconsistent. It's hyper-hypocritical. But the real kicker comes in the next question in verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, do you hear what Jesus has done there? 
he's very plainly pointed out the accusation of him as Beelzebub. It's both logically incoherent and it exposes them to similar charges. And yet he doesn't leave it there. He then gives them the opportunity to consider the real scenario. That his superior authority over demonic forces are not from within the demonic, uh, d- demonic ranks, but come from an opposing and superior kingdom of God. It's with God's authority. It's by God's finger. It's by God's insistence that demons flee because Jesus is God. It's his finger doing the pointing. Yes? In fact, this is the point of his next little illustration there about the strong man and the stronger man. You see it there in verse 21. Let me sort of paraphrase it quickly. Basically, he says, when a strong man guards a house, there's a picture of a strong man. He's a strong-looking fellow. I'd like to say it was me, but it's not. He's a strong man here. When a strong man guards his house, here he's referring to the demonic possession of the mute man. When a strong man is guarding a house, his possessions are safe. That is until a stronger rival shows up. And then it's on, yeah? Because a stronger man will overthrow the lesser man. Again, it's simple logic in that sense. And here Jesus is saying he's the stronger man. That's how he's able to remove the mute demon. He's the stronger man. He's the strongest man. He can overthrow any rival. What's more, if he is guarding your house, if he is guarding the house, then it is completely safe. As a quick little aside, but an important aside, I want to say, There's no such thing, this really does put pay to the idea, there's no such thing as demonic possession of Christians. Because if God's spirit, if God God has taken up residence in your heart, if he is the Lord and king of your life, there's nothing and no one that can displace him. He's the stronger man. Do you see this? But then Jesus adds another little cat amongst the pigeons. In fact, he says, verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. You see, here's our big idea of the passage again. Jesus is laying down an ultimatum. It's very clear. It's very pointy. It's to those standing in front of him and to everyone listening now. He gives you one of two options. With him or against him. Gathering with him or scattering There is no neutral territory. Now, that is a serious challenge, friends. I I want you to see this. This is a serious challenge. Not everyone is comfortable with Jesus speaking in such exclusive terms. It can feel intolerant. It can feel uh, somehow hard-headed. You will be labored a bigot, potentially, if you say this. But can I say to you, in fact, that Jesus is uh, is putting it so plainly and so bluntly, it is the most necessary and the most loving thing that he can do for people, them and us. Because he's helping us to grasp the truth that when it comes to your decision and opinion about him, there is no such thing as accidentally mistaken. Do you understand what I mean? But there's no such thing as accidentally mistaken. You will either be right about Jesus or you will be willfully and dangerously wrong. You're either with him or against him. Which is it? There's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland. In fact, what he's saying here is there's no such thing as an unguarded heart. This is what the next little bit's about. Let me just keep walking you through the passage. This is what he's talking about in verse 24, about an evil spirit going in and out of a man, returning later on with seven more. It sounds really odd because we don't necessarily automatically think in the categories of cosmology. and uh, We don't think about this sort of stuff as much. It's not as, as prevalent an issue in our day and age, I don't believe. But the point that Jesus is making here is actually pretty simple. 
He's saying there's no such thing as an unguarded house or heart. In other words, Jesus didn't heal the possessed man to then leave him unguarded. Jesus overthrew the strong man in order to claim and guard the heart or the house as his own because he's a stronger man. And therefore, if you're not on board with the stronger man, you're against him. You're actually siding with, or at the very least, opening yourself up to being the eventual captive of the rebel forces. There's no such thing as an unguarded house. There's no such thing as an unguarded house, a heart. A house that has just simply been swept clean and put in order will not remain vacant forever. That's what he's getting at. You're either trusting in Jesus as the stronger man and therefore with the protection of God's authority, you are safe or you will fall victim to the other side. It's actually why when the woman shouts out in verse 27, oh, blessed is the mother that gave you birth and the mother that nursed you. It's why he doesn't accept that. That's a Switzerland statement. (laughs) That is a generic statement. It suggests a positivity towards Jesus, but it's not enough. Oh, good on you, Jesus. Wow, what a good gal your mum must have. No, Jesus redirects her. Verse 28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what he's on about. Don't just sort of, you know, spin your whistle and cheer him on as though you can be a neutral observer. He's calling you to hear and obey. Don't just sit there smiling and nodding. Don't cheer from the sideline. Realize you're in the game and you've got to choose your side and you'd be mad to choose the weaker team. So get on board with the stronger team and follow the coach's instructions. Are you feeling the pinch yet? You should be. The first hearers certainly felt the pinch. In fact, it seems at this point that they've they've finally twigged that maybe the Beelzebub accusation wasn't a good one. They realise that there's no neutral territory when it comes to Jesus. It's either with or against. So what do they do? It's a classic human manoeuvre, this next one, isn't it? It's, it's, It's echoed down through the ages, no doubt. It's the hesitation before a major purchase. It's the, oh yeah, can you just show me how that works again kind of question, you know. Before I commit, this what, sorry, what's the flugelbinder do again? Yeah. <clears throat> the crowd wants more miraculous signs. In fact, some of them have been asking from, from verse 16, if you flick your eyes over there. And it seems reasonable. Certainly, I want to suggest in the case of a major purchase, it is reasonable. There is wisdom in it. Before you buy a car, take it for a lap around the block, come back, maybe take it for another one, reverse it around the block, I don't know. You know, you want to cover all your bases. But when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to this specific context, given all that Jesus has said and done in their presence, what's Jesus' response to the demand of extra miraculous signs? Look at 29. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign. but None will be given except the sign of Jonah. A wicked generation that seeks miraculous signs. They are strong words. Why does Jesus go so hard at those who seemingly are seeking extra signs, who just want to be sure? Why why does he go so hard on them? Wicked generation? The answer is simple, because it's completely unnecessary. It is completely inappropriate. He has given plenty of signs. He has given ample evidence. And their request for more signs, more miracles, is not an indication of wisdom in this case. It's actually more a testament of their rejection. They want Jesus to dance to their tune. And they'll only agree to submit on their terms. And that's not how you approach the God of the universe. 
Understand that. And yet people do it all the time. Still today, people do it all the time. Despite the glut of evidence available to us about God, about Jesus, we play the old, if God would just do this, then I'd believe. I mean, have we, have we not all played that game at some point? I've got a ridiculous story about asking God to move the soap out of the soap dish when I was about six. Then I'll believe. I mean, I could have thought of something a bit more fancy than that, but it's like, just move the soap, God, and I'll believe. What a nuts, what a nut idea. We've all played it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus is, uh, God is in, incapable of moving the soap, so to speak. <laughs> don't get me wrong, God may answer that request for you personally, but he's no, under, under no obligation to do so because he's already given you ample evidence through Jesus, through history, through his word, by his spirit. And so if your request is actually more about assuming that God must bend to your whim, that he must march to the beat of your drum, if it's more of an indication of your attitude that he owes you something more than he's already given, I'm telling you, don't expect him to answer. That is an inversion of the created order. He's God, you're not. He's the creator, you're the creature. And he's already given you everything required to believe. It's ridiculous and inappropriate to suggest that it's not enough. The heavens declare the glory of God. The the stars proclaim the the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth. You look at the sky and you can see the handiwork of God. In fact, Romans 1 will talk about that creation in and of itself points people without excuse to God and his eternal qualities, his divine nature. No one's got an excuse. In fact, this is what Jesus meant as well by the sign of Jonah. In fact, Jesus here points to two historical precedences of God's ample provision of evidence, the prophet Jonah and the queen of the south, queen of Sheba. How was Jonah a sign though? Do you, know, do you realize the sign of Jonah? Jonah preached an eight-word, uninspiring, purposely vague sermon to the Ninevites and they repented and trusted God. I mean, have a look at it. Come up on the screen. Jonah 3.4, this was Jonah's begrudging sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a howler. <laughs> And it's enough. In fact, that's it. And that's enough. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. In other words, they mourned their rebellion and sought God's favor through repentance instead. The Ninevites got it from an eight-word, poorly crafted, ambiguous, vague, begrudging sermon. What excuse could the Jews now give? for their rejection of Jesus, God in the flesh, teaching and demonstrating, and not just doing that, but actually inviting them, a loving invitation to be his forgiven friends? What excuse could they use? What excuse could you use? See, it's similar with the Queen of Sheba, verse 31. She recognized the wisdom of Solomon, God's wisdom in Solomon from miles away. Now, Sheba, where is it? Well, it's a bit it's debated. Is it either in sort of southern Sudan or in uh, southern Arabia, sort of Yemen, uh, modern-day Yemen? It's disputed. But the point is, she recognized God's wisdom in Solomon from 2,000 kilometers away. She didn't have Google. She didn't have a phone. And yet she figuratively says, it says they're travelled from the ends of the earth to get nearer to it. 
And if she could recognize God's wisdom in Solomon at over 2,000 kilometers away, how much less excuse do the Jews have for not recognizing God at an arm's length, a literal arm's length? They have no excuse. And neither do we, because someone greater than Jonah and Solomon is being put before us today. And if we attempt to reject him, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will even testify to the ignorance and the arrogance of that rejection. Do you hear that? They had less excuse than you. They had less excuse than me. See, friends, this is the truth here. It's never a lack of evidence that causes people to reject Jesus. It's not a lack of evidence that caused the Jews to reject Jesus in his day. It was an unwillingness to believe and humble themselves before Jesus. It was an unwillingness to admit they'd pegged Jesus wrong. It was a refusal to change. And that is exactly true today. People reject Jesus as Lord and Saviour, as God over all, who is worthy of all honour, glory and praise. It's never for a lack of evidence that causes people's rejection. It's not an intellectual problem per se. It is always a heart problem. In fact, actually, finally, Jesus even says here, actually, it's an eye problem. It's an eye problem. What What do I mean by that? Everyone essentially is born with spiritual cataracts. Though we have eyes to see physically, we are spiritually blind at birth, unable to naturally see Jesus for who he is. That's because we've been born into sinful enmity against God. Therefore, we make a hash out of life. We're oriented away from God. We attempt to make our own way in our dark world with our own rules for our own sake. But there's another option. There's a better option. It's actually to put on gospel glasses and walk in the light of Jesus. Let me look, see how this plays out in, with me in uh, verse 33. Jesus says this. Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bulb. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Jesus here is talking about himself. In fact, in John's gospel, it's all about him, but declaring himself the light of the world. His point in saying this is that he has not come in secret. He did not come in secret. He didn't come to hide himself from people. No, his life was lived, his teachings delivered, his miracles performed, and his death died in front of an audience. It was available for all to see. And through the written testimonies of the eyewitnesses, like Luke's account that we've been looking at for two months, it's available for us to see too. It's the gospel glasses that we need in order to see Jesus for who he is. And this is huge because how you see Jesus, how you look at him, makes all the difference. This is what he's saying in verse 34. It reads a little weird, but it, and it's easy to get confused, but the essential point that Jesus is making here is just this. If your eye is good, that is, if you see Jesus for who he claims to be and see that it is true and accept it, your whole body will be full of life. That is, you understand the complexities of life with greater clarity, with greater humility, with greater awareness of your dependence on God. It's not to say that you'll understand everything as it happens in life from this point forward. But you now know and trust the one who does. You see Jesus and you see God and you trust him. That's what faith is. That's what the gospel glasses do. They remove the scales from your eyes, the spiritual cataracts, to be able to see Jesus for who he is. And everything else makes sense. 
even when it doesn't make sense. Well, that's a profound statement. <laughs> but if your eye is bad, by contrast, if you, if you refuse to see and accept Jesus for who he really is, your whole body will be full of darkness too. You'll get everything else about God wrong as well. And you'll remain against him, not for him. So the question becomes then, folks, how do you see Jesus? How do you see him? Do you see him for who he reveals himself to be through the gospel lenses? Have you had that moment of God flicking on the the light? Have you had that moment where God has changed your heart and your mind so that you now see and trust Jesus as the only genuine light of the world? And are you walking in that light? It's the only sensible response. And if you're not, if you're still unsure, if if Jesus is still fuzzy, if you find your your view of him, you know, you know, strangely, maybe you're unable or even unwilling still to follow and trust him as he commands you do. What do you do with that? I'm, I'm not a, unaware that that may be the position. Be honest about that if it's your position. Are you still a little fuzzy on who he is and why it matters? Are you still a little bit confused about, or even, as I said, unable and unwilling to really jump holus bolus off the proverbial fence into his team and follow and trust him? And if so, if you are finding it difficult, if you are finding it confusing, what do you do with that? Well, let me leave you with something from a man who was in this position at one point himself. He was named at that point Saul of Tarsus. He was a religious zealot. He was a Pharisee. He was opposed to Christians. He was unwilling and unable to see Jesus for who he was until God knocked him off his horse. You can read this story, and I encourage you to do it. Read it in Acts 9. Saul, on his way to Damascus, on his way to go and persecute Christians, is physically blinded by God so that he might spiritually see Jesus properly. And this is how he came to understand and describe the event of his own conversion for the Corinthian church. Have a look at it here, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, may his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, do you hear that? Here's where your hope to see Jesus properly and respond accordingly, here's where it needs to be. It's in God alone. It's in God who called light out of darkness, just as he did in creation. You realize that's the beginning of the Bible? (laughs) This is what Paul's talking about. He's linking his own conversion experience to creation. God who called light out of darkness does the same thing every time he flicks the light on in someone's heart to see Jesus and not just see a man of history, but to see God's glory in his face, to see Jesus by his spirit through his word. It is a new creation every time someone becomes a Christian. That is a marvelous miracle. It's what everybody needs. It's what God delights to do. And I certainly hope, folks, that we would pray now. In fact, we will pray now that we will all be found among that number. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, uh, for Jesus, for his strong challenge, for his ultimatum about being with him or against him, not so that we would choose the latter, 
but that so we would actually despair in ourselves, even despair in our inability to be able to follow him and see him as he really is, but that we might be humbled, that we might now, as we, as we are, ask that you would give us the light, give us your spirit, that we might read with gospel glasses and see Jesus for who he is and see your glory in his face and willingly not just bow the knee but follow and obey. We pray that you would do that for everyone here, Father, for everyone in our town, in our state, in our country, in the world. We pray that you would do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.